0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. If you're following along um, with the Bibles underneath your chair, it's on page 931. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness. For him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another. I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is God's word.
0: So, let me take you back to 1963. Birmingham, Alabama. Martin Luther King Jr. is in a jail cell. He'd been thrown in there for some of the protests, peaceful protests that he had conducted. And so he penned a letter from his cell that's now known as a letter from a Birmingham jail. And he's basically writing it to white, southern, quote-unquote, Christians... ...who are opposing the way in which he's going about seeking racial reconciliation... Let me read you a clip here from it. This is Martin Luther King. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, I continued to think about the matter. I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was not Martin Luther, an extremist, by saying, Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, and Abraham Lincoln, and Thomas Jefferson. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. So that's a fair question. What kind of extremists are you? Are you a health extremist? Family extremist? School? Work? What kind of extremist are you? And even more practically speaking, from our text this morning, what kind of extremist was the Apostle Paul? I think a lot of people would Answer that question probably that Paul was an extreme Christian, if you will, if there is such thing. But what kind of extremists are we? And so what we want to build on this morning is where Randy had us last week. And if you had not had an opportunity to listen to that sermon, I encourage you to do so. And so if you weren't here or you don't remember it, that's okay. That's why we have podcasts. Go back and listen to it. It's incredibly encouraging. And so last week, what Randy exhorted us in was spiritual courage. The Apostle Paul demonstrated spiritual courage and that as Christians, we ought to be a people that display not worldly courage, but spiritual courage. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And in spiritual courage, the two questions, the two most pointed questions that he asked last week were, what has God called you to? And then why aren't you doing it? And so in God calling us to do something, there's a, a, a specific sense. You know, John, what has God called you and Korah to specifically? But then there's a more general sense as Christians. What has God called us to, right? And so he said there are three things that God had called us as Christians to. To serve willingly, to lead boldly, and to witness clearly. So to serve, to lead, and to witness. And what we'll build on this morning is really unpacking then what it means to be a godly witness. What does that even mean? And how can we judge whether or not we are godly witnesses. And so when we see Paul, the the idea of being a witness or an ambassador or a reflection of is throughout the entire Bible. And we see it even just two chapters prior in Acts chapter 20, if you guys will remember when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says to them, if I could just finish the race to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Of God. Because to be a witness of something is to attest to it or to have personal knowledge. And so this is a sense in which Paul felt like one of his chief Christian duties was to witness or testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But before we can ever be external witnesses, testify externally to what god has done we have to experience that internally and that's what romans chapter 8 tells us that the spirit bears witness that we are children of god and so it's only when the spirit bears witness to us individually that we can ever be godly external witnesses of the grace and mercy of christ and so our text this morning in acts chapter 22 Our aim is pretty simple. If it indeed is a part of the Great Commission, and we see that in the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus tells us, you will then be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If that is certainly one of the aims of the Christian life, then from this text, let's pull out four attributes, or four characteristics of what a godly witness would look like. Now, what I have to say this morning is of no value whatsoever. But what God may have to say to each of us through his word is of an infinite value. And so you judge for yourself this morning whether or not these four attributes come from this text. Because if they don't, then you should totally disregard it. But if they do, and we're not held accountable in judging and discerning from our own lives whether or not we are godly witnesses. And so our outline's pretty simple. We're just going to take four attributes. If you're taking notes, this may be helpful for you. Our four points are, is that a witness, a godly witness, speaks boldly. A godly witness tells the story. Of a sinner saved by grace. A witness exalts in the work of Christ. And finally, number four. A witness isn't fearful of the outcome. But rests deeply in the sovereignty of God. So those are our four points. They'll maybe sound vaguely familiar when we get to them. Um, Number one. A witness speaks boldly. Let's turn to uh, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when I heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So the first thing Paul does... Because the setting here is that Paul has journeyed from uh, uh, his time with the Ephesians in Ephesus for three years. He's now crossed the Mediterranean and is in Jerusalem. And he just spent, literally the verses prior to this, he had just spent time with James, the brother of Jesus, and the other elders of the Jerusalem church. And he is telling them of what God had done amongst the Gentiles in all the places that he had traveled over the last several years. And what the uh, elders tell him in that time is that, hey, you need to understand that there are Orthodox Jews that have been converted in this city, in Jerusalem, but now have heard that you're going around telling everyone else that they need to forsake Their traditions of their fathers and the Mosaic law don't need to be circumcised or practice any form of temple worship or anything else, which was not true. And so they said, in order for you to establish some commonality with the Christians here in Jerusalem, there are a couple things you need to do. And so what Paul is in the middle of here, because he's just been arrested now at the temple, Paul is in the middle of performing what's known as a Nazarene vow. It was a, uh, it's from Numbers chapter 6. It's a purification process where it, as, a, as a Jew, if you had spent time either being unclean, whether by something that you did, or spent time with Gentiles for extended periods of time, there would be a cleansing process to make you back right before you could come back into the temple. And so Paul's in the middle of performing a Nazarene vow here, and he's arrested. And the first thing that he does, if you see it in verse 2, he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. So the first thing he does when he speaks boldly is he establishes common ground. He, he, he finds where there are similarities. And we would, we would probably do well in our conversations, wouldn't we? To, to find more places that we agree on rather than things that we disagree on. Think about conversations with neighbors or co-workers or parents or classmates or siblings. Generally, maybe I'm speaking from my own experience and own personal issue, I find a lot more uh, conversations tend to what we disagree on than what we agree on. And there is much here that Paul disagrees with the Jews on. But the first thing he does is he establishes common ground. The second thing he does, which we see in in verse 3, ...is he creates credibility with them. Doesn't he? He says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And we know from Acts chapter 5... ...that Gamaliel is uh, one of the priests in Jerusalem... ...and he's actually very well thought of amongst all the Jews. And so he he establishes credibility with these Jews... ...and then he, he creates credibility. And the third thing he does, which is interesting is that he is going to articulate an educated response for why he believes what he believes. Friends, how many of us can give educated, in-depth descriptions from the Bible of why we have hope in Jesus? Peter tells us in his letter that we ought to be able to give an account for the hope that we have. So just like Paul, we have a responsibility to know our Bibles, to to know the reason that we live differently. What's interesting here too about Paul is that he's establishing this common ground and and creating credibility and and reminding them of his education. And earlier in Acts, we know that Paul was actually at the the top of his class uh, in terms of his education in the Scriptures. But Paul is about to speak very plainly and very straightforwardly to these Jews, which is a, a habit that marked his life. You go back and read other parts of Acts. But I heard heard a pastor say one time that you have to be able to hug hard in order to hit hard. So the concept there is, unless we are loving the people that we're talking to, we're never going to be able to convey bold truth to them. And that's your spouse. That's your unbelieving brother. That's your parents, It's your friends. That if we don't hug hard, we'll never be able to hit hard. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them of the commonality that they share. I was in Washington, D.C. this past weekend. And uh, uh, a fairly new friendship that I have with a guy there. He works on Capitol Hill. And uh, he was telling us about, a, story, about a, a conversation he'd had with a coworker. And the coworker says to him, I'm X number of days away from being able to retire and move to California and spend the rest of my life there. And they had had some relationship. And he's, he's telling me the story. And he says, I looked at him and I told him. As a Christian, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you That if all you do with the rest of your life is retire to California and spend your money, and you never know Jesus, you have lost. And fortunately, he had a lot of relational equity in that uh, conversation to be able to, to say that. How many of us would say something like that? Better yet, how many of us have the relational status... With coworkers and friends to be able to say that, how many of us speak boldly? And maybe the question isn't, "Do you speak boldly?" but, "Will you?" Because Paul is about to go on a uh, a circuit tour of the who's who in the Roman Empire between Festus and Felix and Agrippa. And Bernice, he, he is going to meet every powerful person in the Roman Empire almost. And his message never changes. So a godly witness speaks boldly. The second thing a godly witness does is tells the story of a sinner saved by grace. And we get that from verses 6 through 11. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. We know from Paul's later letter, later letter to Timothy that he identified himself as what he called a chief sinner, a former blasphemer. And so Paul knew not just what he had been saved to on that road to Damascus, but he knew what he had been saved from. And Paul spent conversation after conversation, prison sentence after prison sentence, shipwreck after shipwreck, Reminding anybody who would listen about his story, about where God saved him from. And so what's hard sometimes, particularly in a quote-unquote Christian culture here in the South, is that there are a lot of good people, aren't there? A lot of good people. A lot of polite people, a lot of friendly people, a lot of hospitable people. And that makes it a lot more difficult for us to see that we are chief sinners. Because there's a lot of people that are, by their own estimation, pretty good. And so why does a good person need God? If you are experiencing health or financial prosperity or uh, promotions at work, um, if things are going generally well for you and you are not a Christian, do not mistake those blessings as God's pleasure with you. You need to have an alternative reading of those blessings. Those are what we call common grace. Which means that God in his providence and his kindness and his goodness is refraining his wrath from coming down. And that those blessings in your life are by no means an endorsement or a pleasure From God. And so what. You have the opportunity to do. If you don't know Christ. Is to trade in finite blessings. Displayed. By God's common grace. To eternal blessings. Where God pours out his infinite saving grace. And it is. I'm up here. How can I describe. The value of. ...of God's infinite grace. I don't have the words to say it. I'm reminded of John Calvin... ...a 1700s theologian. He talks about one day where he uh, rode on horseback into the woods. And go back and read the quote. It it is amazing. And he talks about in that moment... ...where where he has a, a, a time and a space where he sees Jesus... I don't know if it was a visual or an experiential situation. He says, all I wanted to do in that moment was to know Christ, to be with Christ, to experience Christ, to lean and rest and, and sit with Christ. Because to sit with Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything else. And Paul, on that road to Damascus, experienced that kind of conversion experienced the kind of conversion of a dead man coming alive and that flavored so many of his relationships and conversations does it flavor ours do do, do we are we quick to identify not out of a false sense of, of humility but are we quick to identify the ways in which we fall short Are we quick to repent and humble ourselves? Not just before others, but before God. The third thing that a godly witness does. A godly witness exalts in the work of Christ. Starting in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So Ananias in this text reflecting back on Paul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9. Tells Paul that, that Paul was appointed to know God's will. And so specifically for Paul, God's will was that he would be the vessel to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, we see that Paul was appointed to carry him not only to the Gentiles, but to kings and rulers, which he's about to do here in the last couple chapters in Acts. And for Paul... He was appointed also to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. That's a reference to Paul's apostleship. So one of the prerequisites to be an apostle is that you had to be able to testify of your first-hand experience of the work of Jesus. And so Paul, having seen Jesus, and we know of at least once on the road to Damascus, possibly more from his letter in 1 Corinthians I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And a couple other places. But that Paul had seen the Lord Jesus. And the third. Is that Paul was to bear witness. To everyone of what he had seen and heard. Because Paul had seen something both literally and figuratively. That left him in awe. He had seen something so wonderful. Experienced something so majestic that he couldn't help but tell others. And we've, we, I, I know this quote has been used before, but th- this is incredibly helpful. This is C.S. Lewis talking about why, when you enjoy something, let me just, let me just read the quote. He says it better than I could, anyway. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. There is a sense in which, friends, that our joy in Christ isn't fully complete until we are exalting and praising and worshiping him both internally and externally. And so think, think about anything in your life that you're a fan of, whether it be a sports team or a restaurant or whatever else, a soccer team, right? Part of your enjoyment in that is that you tell others about it. And so, if you're a Christian and you're not exalting in the work of Christ on your behalf, there's a joy, a particular joy, a particular peace that you're missing, that God has designed for you to experience. And He says that it's a a joy that the angels long to experience. And it's one that Paul would over and over again. Thinking about in the jail cell that we read a couple of chapters ago. And maybe this is what Isaac Watts in in 1707 was thinking about. When he wrote the the famous hymn, which we'll sing later. uh, When I survey the wondrous cross. He says, when I survey... The wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. And Paul, in in his letter to the church at Galatia, would say, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, What else can I brag about but that? I have nothing to offer you. I am a chief sinner, a former blasphemer. I killed other Christians. And the list goes on and on and on and on. He said, what can I boast in other than the best thing about me? Which is that I am a sinner saved by Christ. If we're honest, most of us don't view our salvation that way, do we? Because we're basically good people. But there is a greater joy in becoming lesser. That is the great paradox of the Christian life. Is that in in suffering, we have more joy. In becoming less, we become greater. And that is... By God's infinite wisdom, the way that he designed it. But not just exalting, and this is what's, I think this is important. Not just that we would reflect back on what God has done. But we also relish and reflect on what God is doing. And then ultimately, one day, what he will do. And so there's a sense in which our exaltation, our enjoyment, our praise, our worship of Christ has to be past tense, present tense, and future tense. Or we're missing a, a, an experiential joy in Christ. Final point, point number four. A witness... This this may be the most important one. This This is so good. A witness isn't fearful of the outcome. But rests deeply in the sovereignty of God. A witness, a godly witness, isn't fearful of the outcome, but rests deeply in the sovereignty of God. We know from Acts chapter 21 that Paul's closest friends were begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Because, in the same way, that Jesus in Luke chapter 9 sets himself, it it says, he sets his face towards Jerusalem to ascend to the ultimate place where he would be wrongly crucified and killed that Paul is setting his face towards Jerusalem as well, which would be only the beginning of his persecution and imprisonment. And so, after after multiple shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments, and the list goes on and on and on and on. What did that mean for Paul? He, he had a, a he had a couple ways of viewing this. He could either view it through a lens that God wasn't in control, or that He was. In every event, whether it be good or bad, hard or easy, filled with suffering or filled with joy, we have to decide whether or not we will view it through a lens that the Lord Jesus Christ is in control or he isn't. And that makes all the difference in the world. A quote from a pastor here about the sovereignty of God is so good. Sometimes we need to plunge our minds into the ocean of God's sovereignty. A billion rivers of providence pour in this ocean. Sometimes we need to be reminded that there are no limits to his rule. We need to hear from him that he is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. We need his own reminder that he is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. We need his assurance that he reigns. Friends, if you are in here, and you are not a Christian, or you're unsure if you want to be a Christian, one day you will stand before God and give an account for everything that you have said and done. And you will be declared guilty if you stand on your own measure. But if if you are a Christian, and each of us, I, I'm looking around even now, knowing some of the situations and hardships and losses and struggles that we have as a church body. Let me Let me do the best thing that I can do for you right now, which is to read you seven different scriptures from the Bible to assure you that Christ Jesus the Lord is reigning, He is in control, and He has nothing that frustrates His rule. And so you're not going to have time to write down the verses, but let the words from the Bible pour over your heart and encourage you and lift you up and remind you that if you know Christ, that there is no situation, no circumstance, either past, present, or future, that will ever remove you from his watchful eye. Romans 13.1, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. John nineteen eleven, Jesus answered him, this is Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Psalm one thirty five six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah forty six, nine and ten. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel two twenty one. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Two more. Job 42, two. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 31.15. My times are in your hands. Whatever awaits each of us outside these doors will either push you away from Christ or push you toward Him. One will lead to destruction, emptiness, dissatisfaction. The other leads to life and joy and contentment and purpose and infinite measures of peace that cannot even be described. If we are to be godly witnesses for God, we have to first treasure what we've received from God, which is the gift of His Son, Jesus. Let me spend the last two minutes on some practical application. If a godly witness speaks boldly. If a godly witness. Be honest with you, I just forgot all my points. Godly godly witness speaks boldly. Tells the story of a sinner saved by grace. A godly witness exalts in the work of Christ. And a godly witness is not fearful of the outcome. But rests deeply in the sovereignty of God. The fair question to ask then is how can we cultivate a life where we're displaying spiritual courage and being a biblically faithful witness of Jesus. I've got five things that I think will be helpful in that. The first, read the Bible and particularly stories of the lives of men and women who did these things. Some examples come to mind. Um, Joshua, David, Haggai, Amos, Obadiah, Moses, Noah. The list goes on and on and on. The Bible is filled from cover to cover with stories of men and women. That were bold witnesses for Christ. Number two. After you've exhausted the Bible, read books about men and women who were bold witnesses for Christ. There are a number of books back there. Uh, Let me give you maybe some helpful resources. Uh, The story of Elizabeth Elliot. C.S. Lewis, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, Robert Murray McShane, William Tyndall, William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The list goes on and on and on. So read the Bible. And read the lives and stories of those men and women who have done it well. Then, once you've exhausted that, why don't we read books about men and women have served Christ well, who have represented him well, who leave in the the wake of their lives an odor and an aroma that is overwhelmingly Jesus. Number three, we should subject ourselves to accountability by asking others to speak honestly As to whether or not they observe these characteristics in our own life. And then when they do speak. Let's listen. The the easiest way to do that. In our church body here. Is community groups. If you are a regular attender. Or you call this church your home. And you are not a part of a community group. You are doing yourself, your family, and those around you an eternal spiritual disservice. That God has designed that we do the Christian life together. Do you ever wonder why heaven is not just like an isolated place where you're there by yourself? We're not meant for that. We are meant for life together. And there are so many joys to be found in watching and observing in other people characteristics of Christ that you don't possess in yourself. It is incredibly humbling and incredibly enriching. So number four, pray. Ask God to help you be someone that speaks boldly, that tells your story of where God has saved you from, that isn't fearful of an outcome and trust deeply in his sovereignty and that is constantly singing the praises of the work of Christ in your life, past, present, and future. Ask God to help you with that. Number five, final point. Just do it. Just do it. Jesus just did it for you and for me. Just do it. What more can we say? Christ has died for us, and we get the joy of living for him. And let me just say, in in, in studying and preparing for this sermon, I have felt wholly inadequate. I think in large part because I observe characteristics and godliness in many of you that I do not possess in myself. And I am incredibly thankful that God has put me and my family in this church body to grow me, to prune me, to sharpen me, and to hopefully make me more and more into his image. And I trust that that's been your experience as well. And if it hasn't, keep pressing in. And if it's not at this church, find another church. And there are plenty. We prayed for a couple of them at the beginning of service. There are plenty of churches that have men and women that smell of the aroma of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that what was said here today was what you wanted said. And what wasn't said, you didn't. We trust also that in your divine wisdom and power and mercy. That you will take these words that are empty apart from you. And that you will use them to transform us. Lord, for some of us in here who may be an enemy of you. Who may be sitting under your wrath and don't even know it. We reek of sin and don't even know it. We, we have tried to seek pleasure and joy in so many lesser things. Lord, would you have these words be just as sharp as a sword and that it would pierce through our hearts and it would lead us to turn and repent for the ways in which we failed to love you. Would you cast our gaze and our eyes heavenward you cause the posture of our heart to look at the wondrous cross. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today.